Hey, and welcome back to Grace Talks, a Christian's women's podcast that studies the Bible, the women in it, and applies it to our lives today. Today, we are going to be talking about Michael, a woman who struggled with her heart. I am an all-in kind of person, not with betting, but with life. Sometimes it can take me a while to make a choice, but once I do, I am full speed ahead. I'm like that with academics, my career, relationships, and hobbies. I can get over-invested. And that's going to be our key word today, over. Because a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about are good things that can be blown out of proportion and made into bad things when they're overused or overvalued. Getting good grades is an awesome thing, but finding your worth in how you perform on exams and stack up against classmates isn't healthy. Working hard to build a career is a good trait, but when it is your number one priority in life, it can leave you feeling burnt out, isolated, and unsatisfied. Dedicating time to hobbies is a great thing, but it can be overvalued as well. For instance, this podcast is a good thing. I get to research more in depth about biblical characters and grow as a Christian, and hopefully you will get something out of it as well. But if I started prioritizing the podcast over the women in my Bible study, or if I started worrying more about how many people listen to an episode than I cared about how much I'm growing in my faith with God, that's where we find ourselves making something good into something bad. We do this with relationships as well. Friendships, family, partners. We can take any of these really good relationships, overvalue them, and turn them into idols. If you place something or someone on a pedestal, it's going to be a god to you. It's going to be an idol. The thing with these false gods is that they're always going to let you down at some point, and you can grow to resent them, and even yourself. Michael is a woman that is going to demonstrate this concept for us, but first I want to read a passage from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 7, 15-22, and then verses 26-29 through 29 reads like this. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things, while I was still searching but not finding. I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book easily captioned as meaningless. It basically sums up how pointless a life without God is. This passage is telling us that without God, People live in extremes, over-wickedness or over-righteousness, and that neither are good things. The over-wicked part might be self-explanatory, but what does it mean to be over-righteous? Don't we always talk about how righteousness is a good thing? 
well, yeah, righteousness is. But righteousness from God is what's good. In this context of over-righteousness, it means the righteousness apart from God. Self-righteousness. The passage says to not be over-wise. It means that you shouldn't lean on your own judgment or think of yourself as better and smarter than other people, and especially not think that you're more clever than God. It says that there's not one person who is righteous, not one person who never sins. God created humans to be upright, but if you remember our story about Eve, we messed that up and began to search out our own purposes and plans. So why do I tell you about this before even mentioning Michael? Because I wanted to remind you first off that life is meaningless without God. We could be a princess of a wealthy nation with a handsome warrior and poet for husband, but without God, everything is in vain. We wind up in extremes as we try to find our identity in something, in anything. But when God is in our lives, we avoid the extremes. We can avoid being over wicked because we have the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts and our choices and to gain the strength we need to progress and grow in our faith. We can avoid being over-righteous because we're constantly reminded of how great our God is and how meaningless our lives are without him. We can stay humble when we compare ourselves to a perfect God. We can avoid the word over and just be known as a child of God. So now that we have all of this fresh in our minds, let's put the story into context. You've probably heard of David. He's the guy who fought the giant named Goliath with a slingshot and a stone. Long story short, there was a king named Saul who started going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Meanwhile, God had anointed David as a future king of Israel, where he would take over from Saul eventually. David starts becoming popular among the people because of how he handled Goliath and some other battles. Now, at first, Saul likes David, but he eventually becomes incredibly jealous and fearful of him. And he begins these plots to have David killed. But the thing is, David is best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and I mean like best friends of all time, best friends. So between his friendship with him and then Michael, who is Saul's daughter, and a bunch of other people, not to mention, you know, God having his back, David keeps thwarting Saul's schemes. So knowing this background, let's start with reading 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 20 through 29. Now Saul's daughter Michael was in love with David, and when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, Now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants speak to David privately and say, Look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David. But David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michael in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. So 
Saul thought that he could be clever and use Michael against David. He wanted her to be like the woman from Ecclesiastes 7, 26, a woman who was a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. He figured that he could get David killed by fighting a hundred Philistines. Joke's on him, though, because David fought and killed twice as many and won Saul's daughter Michael. I'm sure Saul then thought that he could use Michael as a snare once she was David's wife, but Saul then sees that Michael loves David, and of course he becomes even more afraid of David. So, let's see if Michael is indeed a snare for David in the next chapter. 1 Samuel 19, 11-17 reads like this. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michael said, He is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, Bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed, and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michael, Why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michael told him, He said to me, Let me get away. Why should I kill you? We see that Michael chooses David over her father. Michael loves him. Of course she protects him because of that, but let's point out that she saves him because she loves him. But there is no mention of her fear of God or love of God. Her actions seem to be driven by human desires. And while God can use that for David's good, Michael's actions were a result of temporary emotions and not spiritual morals. This shows a bit in the fact that she tells her father that David threatened her to be able to escape. She risked David's reputation further to protect herself from her father's potential wrath. I feel like she could have come up with a less destructive lie than that one, but we can reserve judgment for now. She was still a woman who had the intuition to know what her father would do, choose to defy him, and help her husband escape. More things happen. It's a long couple chapters. And then in Samuel 25, we find out that Saul gives Michael to another man in marriage because David's been gone for a while, right? He's escaped. This guy's name was Paltiel. Lots of other stuff happens. And then Saul dies. And this guy named Abner makes a deal with David 14 years after David escaped, thanks to Michael, to help David take over the kingship which God had anointed him for. So David makes an agreement to the deal, but says this in 2 Samuel 3, 13 through 16. Good, said David, I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michael, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Behuram. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Oof, that's a hard part of the story. David was gone 14 years. Michael had been given away, technically illegitimately, because David was alive, to a second husband. But to one you can tell loved her fiercely by the way he whipped behind her all the way to where she was taken. In those 14 years, David had taken other wives, but now that he had the chance, he is sending back for Michael, the one he likely intends to be as queen, as an heir to the previous king and his first wife. I have no clue what Michael must have been going through at that moment. 
The Bible doesn't say anything about her weeping on the road to David. It doesn't say that she wanted to return to him or didn't want to and wanted to stay with Paltiel. She loved David greatly once, but it was likely nearly half her lifetime ago. How hard would that be? Luckily for us now, we aren't treated like a possession. We get to choose where we go, who we marry, who we stay with. But even if given the choice, what do you think Michael would do? Would she return quickly to her first love, the one whose life she saved? Or would she stay faithful to the illegitimate marriage of the man who clearly loved her deeply for 14 years? Either way, there had to be some sort of resentment growing in her heart towards David. This is the man that killed 200 Philistines for her hand in marriage, and he just let 14 years pass by before taking her back. Even if unrealistic, she might have been waiting for him to tear down the world to get to her. And after he didn't, she probably grew to at least care for Paltiel. This is all theory, but I'm just trying to get into Michael's shoes. So far, we haven't learned anything about Michael's heart for God. And a lot of the other biblical women that we learn about, we find out about their positioning towards God, or we see it in their actions. But we don't, at least not yet, with Michael. That leads us to assume that she's spent the last 14 years enduring her life's trials without God by her side. If I didn't have God next to me in my trials, I'd be bitter. I'd be so hopeless and cynical. I'd probably be a snare to be around with a poor attitude and a resentful heart. After all of this, then David establishes a capital in Jerusalem and brings back the Ark of the Covenant. Side note on all of that, the Ark of the Covenant was this gold-plated wooden chest that held the two tablets of the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses by God, and God's presence was in the Ark of the Covenant, or Ark of the Lord, they called it. The Ark had been stolen at one point by the Philistines, and everywhere the Philistines took it, misfortune fell on them. I'm talking plagues and tumors and all sorts of icky stuff. It was so bad, they gave the Ark back to an Israelite city, but the people of that city gazed at the Ark, which they weren't supposed to do, it was supposed to be covered, and they were punished for it. So they got rid of the ark too. They sent it to this guy's house where it stayed for 20 years. Saul never really consulted it or anything like that. But when David captures Jerusalem for the capital, he sends for the ark. And after a few months, he gets it. And he consults the ark, aka God, in battle. And then they totally crush the battle because God says that they will. So obviously they do. So now let's read about their victorious return in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. So, David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person and the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. 
When David returned to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father, anyone from his house, when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So basically, if you didn't catch it, David was basically wearing like a loincloth and dancing half naked in the streets in celebration. David was the author of a ton of the book of Psalms. He was a man who loved God, celebrated God. That was his identifier. He was a man with flair, and he experienced emotions strongly, especially for God. He had a lot of shortcomings, as humans do, but he loved his God. Acts 13.22 says, God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Because David was with God, closely with God, he didn't experience the problem with over. He wasn't over wicked. He rejoiced in God, but he wasn't over righteous. He tells Michael that he will be even more undignified than this and be humiliated in his own eyes before the Lord. This is where Michael struggled. Her love for David was real and did good things, but it was human love. Michael didn't do it because she loved God. She did it because she loved David. And love, it's a good thing. It's a good thing that she loved her husband, but human love is fickle. Human love can be changed quickly to resentment, as we see in many occasions in the Bible and in our modern day lives too. Michael had overvalued David and placed him on a pedestal when she was young. We can't do that. We can't put people on those platforms and expect them to never let us down. We can't treat them like gods. David didn't reach that pedestal when he was gone for 14 years, and he didn't reach her standard when he allowed himself to dance half-naked celebrating God in the streets. Michael despised David in her heart for that. To him, he was wrapped up in celebrating God, but to her, he was simply embarrassing himself and therefore her second hand. Okay, so how does that story apply to any of us? Ideally, we're not going to have a father that actively tries to kill our husband or experience marriages without our own authority. We likely won't have to deal with husbands dancing in loincloths out in the streets or deal with the pressures of reigning as a queen. But we can deal with placing our faith in human love. And we will all battle at points with our hearts. There are times in even the most loving of people that will cause their hearts to be sour. The goal, though, is to be humble enough to allow God to mold your heart, even in the moments you feel like it isn't presentable. Don't be over-righteous and think that you can fix yourself up before coming into God's presence. It doesn't work like that. Don't be like so many of the sad stories in the Bible where people were over-wicked and hardened their hearts and lost out on their chances to be closer and more obedient to God. Don't be over-anything except maybe over-loving to God and to His people, if that were even possible. God just wants you. He wants your heart like he had David's. He wants you out celebrating him unashamed, even in the middle of the streets. He wants you full of joy and close to him, avoiding the extremes and finding peace in that happy medium. So how can we work on that this week? 
let's start off with seeing if there's anything we're overdoing right now. Do you over-prioritize your school or work? Do you overvalue any human relationships to where you've made them into an idol? Have you been overwise, thinking that you're smarter than the God who made you? Be honest with yourself. After you've evaluated, take a second to ask for forgiveness about it. God's right there, willing to take it off your shoulders and forget about it. Forget about everything you've done wrong as far as the East is to the West. And then make a plan for how to draw closer to Jesus this week because Ecclesiastes tells us that the people who fear God avoid all extremes. And if you spend time with God, your respect and love and fear for God will grow. So set aside time for worship this week. Set aside a special time in your day to pray. Plan on reading just one chapter a day of your Bible every day this week. I guarantee you will notice a change in what your mind is focusing on. And when your focus is more on God, everything else just gets easier. Not because life miraculously gets easier, although sometimes it does, but because you are giving the spirit more room to work inside you and develop your character. Life is easier to handle when you have God on your side, giving you the confidence and the peace to handle whatever it throws at you. Well, that's everything I have today. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to be talking about Abigail, another one of David's wives, and I hope to see you then. If you have any questions about today's episode, the Bible, or anything else, I'd be happy to answer it as best as I can. And if you haven't heard it today, God loves you. I love you. You are important. You have worth. And you have a purpose. I'm signing off. Bye.